out on the other side, just being able to like enjoy my life and have a really full life without that constant mental noise about food in my body. That's just something that I want everyone to be able to experience. Hello and welcome to Life Without the Podcast. I'm Julia Wirth, your host, a registered dietitian in New Haven, Connecticut, and this is episode 37. Um, I hope you're all doing okay. I am getting used to working from home all the time um, and having my husband here all the time, which is somewhat of an adventure with us both working and like on phone calls all day. But, um, you know, we're getting used to it. Now it's week, I don't even know, I think 11, but maybe 10. I'm not sure. Um, But I hope you all are doing okay and staying healthy and um, finding, you know, fun things to do as well. And things are starting to open up, which is great um, for a lot of us. So that'll be good. Um, I just wanted to start today before we get into the episode with an article, as always. But today, um, definitely a tough topic, but something that's important to talk about right now. Um, So most of you might have heard that suicide um, is is up right now. And it's up pretty substantially because of, you know, the lockdowns, all the fear, um, all the craziness, and, you know, a lot of people, their life is changing. And and that's something some people, you know, end up getting very depressed and can react this way. And for those who have an eating disorder, um, suicidal ideation is often something that goes along with that. So lots of people who have an eating disorder also experience depression or suicidal thoughts at some points, not all, but it's more common than the general population. So I think it's important for us to address here. So I'm just going to read the start of um, an article that came out in JAMA. That's a journal. Um, it's a medical journal and uh, it was in the psychiatry section. So I'm just going to read that. It came out April 10th. So it says suicide mortality and coronavirus disease 2019, a perfect storm. Suicide rates have been rising in the U.S. over the last two decades. The latest data available, 2018, show the highest age-adjusted suicide rate in the U.S. since 1941. It is within this context that coronavirus disease 2019 struck the U.S. concerning disease models that have led to historic and unprecedented public health actions to curb the spread of the virus. Remarkable social distancing interventions have been implemented to fundamentally reduce human contact. While these steps are expected to reduce the rate of new infections, the potential for adverse outcomes on suicide risk is high. Actions could be taken to mitigate potential unintended consequences on suicide prevention efforts, which also represent a national public health priority. So it goes into, you know, some of the reasons why it's the economic stress, the social isolation, the decreased access to community and religious support, which is huge for people with depression and um, suicidal ideation, barriers to mental health treatment, everything is virtual right now, which is hard. Like being in person with someone can be a lot more effective for a lot of individuals. Um, But I highly recommend you read this article, you know, reach out to people who are in your family, friends, Um, try to stay connected even if you can't see them in person. This is a really important time to take that seriously. And um, if you need support, help, reach out to me. I can help you find a therapist or a dietitian or whoever you need in this time. Obviously, if it's suicidal ideation, we'll be finding a therapist, psychiatrist, doctor, the whole shebang. Um, So 
you know, please don't hesitate. Again, my email, if you need support and you don't know where to go, worth, W-E-R-T-H, your wild nutrition at gmail.com. Also, the National Suicide Hotline is a great resource. I'll list that in the show notes. And also the National Eating Disorder Association, or yeah, National Eating Disorders Association website, um, their hotline or their chat feature can get you to that help as well. So if you need it, check those out. Um, check out the article. Be supportive of everyone. And today, we're here on this show. We're talking not about suicide anymore, but about binge eating. And I really am excited for this show because I think that um, I, I get a lot of questions about binge eating. It's not something that I address that often because um, it's, well, <laughs> this is the problem, right? It's not talked about as much. Like anorexia and bulimia are seen as sort of the iconic eating disorders. Um, I struggled with bulimia, as, as most of you probably know, if you are a listener of the show. And um, binge eating was the last eating disorder to be added to the DSM only in like 2010. So not that long that it's been in the DSM, maybe 2015 even. Um, I don't remember which, but it's only been there for five or 10 years. And it is the most common eating disorder and often the most misunderstood. Like people think, oh, they're just, you know, eating a lot and they're just not being disciplined or, um, you know, it's their fault and there's a lot of shame around it, much more so, even though there is shame around anorexia and bulimia, much, much worse with binge eating in terms of getting help, especially because it's seen as like your problem to fix. Um, It's not seen as an eating disorder and really as Jennifer Rowland, who is here to speak with you. She's amazing. Um, She is the founder of an eating disorder treatment center in Maryland. She is a social worker um, and just really, really knowledgeable about eating disorders. So I'm excited to have her here to speak with you today. But she, you know, is going to talk about how binge eating is really one and the same with the other eating disorders. And if you've been a listener for a while, you probably have kind of come to see that. Like all the eating disorders overlap. There aren't really strict, you know, guidelines between what's what and what's who's what, right? Like you can go back and forth um, easily and they really all come from a place of, you know, another mental health issue going on and also restriction, right? Like they all start with restriction. Someone isn't going to binge if they're not restricting and that um, you're going to see today as you talk to her or here today. <laughs> so hopefully you enjoy the show. I, I learned a lot from Jennifer. Um, check her out. Her, her links are in the show notes. And without further ado, here we go. Binge eating with Jennifer Rowland. Hi, Jennifer. This is Julia. Hi, how are you? Yeah, so I just wanted to start with how did you first start working in the field of eating disorders and then tell my listeners as well a little bit about who you are. So, my name is Jennifer Rowland. I am an eating disorder therapist and founder of the Eating Disorders Center. We work with people in Rockville, Maryland, and then worldwide via video. And I got started in the field of eating disorders. Well, actually, I, I knew I wanted to be a therapist prior to becoming an eating disorder therapist. And then after struggling with and recovering from my own eating disorder, I eventually found myself kind of drawn to eating disorder clients in my clinical practicums. Mm-hmm. And then I started um, getting more training and working with eating disorders. 
worked in a residential program for multiple years, worked in private practice, and now here I am in group practice. That's awesome. And so in the group practice, how many patients are you seeing annually? Sure. So I don't know the exact stats for group practice in total. I know that it is a lot. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Yeah. But we have nine clinicians in the practice. um, And me personally, I see my own patients. um, You know, and my caseload is a bit different than when when I wasn't running a group practice. Right, of course. But we serve a very wide amount of people and a wide range of people. I just don't know the exact numbers. Yeah, no worries. Um, So I know that you wanted to talk a little bit about binge eating because I'm doing this special week um, where I wanted to highlight each type of eating disorder because I think a lot of times people just think of anorexia and there's obviously many different different types of eating disorders. So if you could sort of explain for my listeners what separates binge eating disorder from all the others. Sure. So I think eating disorders have a lot in common, though, of course, everyone's experience is unique. Mm-hmm. I think that there are a few things that separate binge eating disorder from the other eating disorders. But I think that one big factor is just the amount of shame and stigma. I mm-hmm. think many people with eating disorders experience that, but especially for people with binge eating disorder, there's a lot of talk in our culture about people who binge and quote-unquote overeating, and so I think there's a lot of shame and judgment around struggling with that, just feel yeah. like I'm out of control around food is kind of a belief, and I think that, sadly, the other piece about binge eating disorder is that while it's the most common eating disorder, it was only very recently added into the most recent edition of the Diagnostic and Statistical Manual, which right. is what we use to diagnose eating disorders. Yeah, so you were sort of getting at, you know, there's a lot of media and press around the idea of eating too much um, and and making it sort of like, I don't know, I always see these articles that just seem like, are you eating too much? Like, here's a simple fix. Um, and maybe that's tough for someone with binge eating to see because it's not an easy, an easy thing to recover from at all. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so what are some signs to look out for to kind of separate binge eating disorder from what might be someone's typical uh, diet and lifestyle? Sure. So when it comes to binge eating disorder, we might see somebody eating very large amounts of food, which is more than the quote-unquote average person would consume in one sitting, eating very, very rapidly. The person might frequently be dieting. Often they are eating and binging alone and in secret. Mm-hmm. You might also see them hoarding food or doing things like hiding empty food containers in boxes due to the shame around how much they've eaten. Right. And so for someone who might have a family member who might have binge eating disorder, what are things that they could look out for? They might be able to identify as this is an actual disorder as opposed to something else. Yeah, so I think the shame and guilt is a lot, and the secrecy is kind of the big separating factor between somebody who just, you know, has large appetite and eats mm-hmm. way more than the average person versus somebody who's binging. When there's binging, there's guilt, shame, and secrecy often. So right. they might notice that, and often there's attempts to try to quote unquote control food intake during the day. So mm-hmm. they might that the person is suddenly talking about dieting or focused on trying to lose weight 
they might notice that the person is bringing up, let's say it's a child, like a lot of food into their room, you know, after dinner and closing the door. Maybe they're finding empty boxes and food wrappers and they're wondering kind of where the food is starting to go. They're noticing that food is disappearing more rapidly. And again, that like shame and secrecy are going to be big elements of it as well. Right. Something I see a lot in my practice um, when I have a patient with binge eating is that they, they tend to skip the meals like earlier in the day. Um, and sort of what you're saying as an attempt to control their eating, like, oh, I don't, I don't need that. I don't need breakfast. I don't need lunch. And then, you know, you reach a point where you, you really do need food. Um, and then they have that sort of out of control feeling. Do you, do you see that too? Yeah, I think that's super common. It's, you know, the binge restrict cycle mm-hmm. where the person is trying to eat a certain way during the day. Maybe they're trying to eat quote unquote clean or they're having a certain eating style or they're skipping meals. And then they're binging at night or, you know, I've had plenty of people who binge in the morning or other times, but mm-hmm. night time can be a common time to binge as well. Yeah, there's so no one with you. Cycle. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I see, I work mostly with children and in children or adolescents who have binge eating, I see a lot of like that they don't eat during the school day at all, you know? And so that might be something that a friend could notice as yeah. an indicator and that they have a disorder. I've seen that too. I think that's super common. And I will say, unfortunately, as well, just working with a lot of high schoolers, mm-hmm. um, I've worked with high schoolers with eating disorders in my past, you know, jobs and without and with eating disorders. And I think it's very common for kids to say, oh, I don't like the school lunch, even like kids without eating disorders. Yeah. So yeah. it can be hard to differentiate that. But yeah, I think if it's becoming a consistent pattern, that's obviously something to look out for. Right. So what is... It's not Yeah. Yeah, of course. So what does treatment actually look like? Because I think a lot of people don't know even what the first step should be if they have a loved one who has binge eating or they have binge eating disorder. What should what should their first step look like and when? what does treatment look like after that? Yeah, so I think a good first step is opening up to somebody in your life if you feel comfortable because, again, I think this disorder disorder really thrives on shame and secrecy. Mm-hmm. I would then encourage the person to reach out for an assessment with a therapist who identifies as an eating disorder specialist and is also healthy every size. Right. And then from there, they can do an assessment, they can get a diagnosis, and they can begin treatment. Mm-hmm. Um, and treatment is going to be different, obviously, depending on the person. Everyone's eating disorder is a little bit unique. But typically how I start with people is doing an intake assessment, getting a history, starting to understand, you know, the emotional factors going on in their life. And then there's typically three main binging triggers. There's more than this, but these are like three really common ones that right. I see frequently. Um And so those are, the first one is restriction, and that can be physical restriction, like we talked about skipping meals. Mm -hmm. That can also be emotional restriction. So that can be saying, you know, eating the brownie but beating yourself up over it, or eating a brownie and saying, I'm not going to do this tomorrow. Like, I know I'm addicted to sugar or whatever you call yourself. Right, yeah. Diet starts tomorrow. And so step one is we look at, is there restriction happening in the person's life? Is there... Are there um, judgments around food? Are there foods that they're depriving themselves of or beating themselves up around eating? 
Are they under eating for their energy needs, which frequently people are and don't recognize it? Mm-hmm. And so we start with that. And then factor number two is habituation. It's that idea of neurons that um, wire to get, fire together, wire together. And so basically it's that, the example I like to give is, I moved to a new apartment now over a year ago, but my two apartments, my old apartment is like five minutes away from my new one. And I noticed like a month after I moved, I kept like after work, there was one day and I was driving and then I realized I was at my old apartment. Right. And yeah. the reason so why common. it was automatic. <laughs> yeah. So I'd done it that drive a million times and I wasn't paying any attention and I just automatically turned there. And for some people who've been binging over a long period of time, the binge path is very automatic and it doesn't feel like there are as many discernible triggers. It's like I come home, I take my shoes off, I go into the kitchen, I put on the TV and then I binge, right? Mm -hmm. It's a very um, automatic sequence. And so we work at breaking those automatic feedback loops by, you know, inserting, you know, just starting with putting any space in there. So it might be, I want you to email me before you binge. And it's not saying you can't binge, but just that you're going to practice you know, putting a little bit of space between urgent action, or I want you to set a timer and do like a few coping skills for five minutes and then you can binge, but we're just practicing creating some separation between urgent action. Mm-hmm. And there are a lot of different creative strategies we can use to do that. And then the third factor is emotional factors. So looking at the function of the binging in that person's life, what is the binging doing for them? So I've had multiple clients where the binging is the only time they allow themselves to have a break in the right, day yeah um and so looking at the underlying needs that the binging is meeting emotional needs and how we can start to meet them in other ways and then ultimately another big factor in this is going to be the piece about body acceptance because often dieting and focusing on weight loss can fuel binge eating disorder and then additionally looking at the thoughts and the stories that they're telling themselves because one other very common trigger that I didn't mention is the fuck it mentality, right, which is yeah. this idea of, oh, I just ate a brownie. Well, fuck it. I've ruined my quote unquote diet. So I'm just going to eat the rest of the box. Mm-hmm. So you mentioned health at every size briefly, and I think it's really important for binge eating disorder that, as you said, the therapist or whoever is working with them has that approach. Could you talk about you know why that's so important, especially with this disorder? Yeah. So... I believe that if an eating disorder therapist does not help at every size and form, that it's not really ethical practice because they're not following evidence-based guidelines and they're promoting what the eating disorder is afraid of. They're Mm -hmm. reinforcing fat phobia. So for people who don't know, health at every size is this idea of helping people of all sizes to learn how to take care of themselves in a compassionate way without a focus on the number on the scale. And so what I typically say to people is when you recover from any eating disorder, but in this case, we're talking about binge eating disorder, you might lose weight, you might stay the same weight, or you might gain weight, right? But your body is going to do whatever it naturally does when you heal your relationship with food. And trying to control that is only going to keep you stuck right, in definitely. your eating disorder. So if the clinician's not held at every size, it's going to be really hard to recover from binge eating disorder with a focus on weight loss. I just think they're completely paradoxical. Yeah. It is also always so odd to me when someone has like eating disorder and weight management as like their specialties. And I'm like, how can you work with both? (laughs) I don't understand (laughs) that. 
<laughs> yeah. Sometimes I want to give people the benefit of the doubt and say maybe they're just trying to get people in the door. But true, true. I yeah. do know that does bother me quite a lot. And I do know therapists who are eating disorder specialists who believe in a weight loss approach. Mm-hmm. Um, and I am just, I would be very surprised if there were people who truly recovered and truly found peace with themselves through that focus. I just think it's totally anesthetical to eating disorder treatment. And unfortunately, eating disorder providers are not immune to the same shop phobia that we're always Oh, yeah. Can't, yeah. Yeah, you can't solve a problem by trying to treat it with the same framework through which the problem was not created, but exacerbated and perpetuated. Right, definitely. And so for a patient, if you have, you know, a patient or a client come in and they are, um, you know, in a larger body and they have binge eating disorder, and oftentimes, at least for me, they often bring up like, well, what about weight loss? What do you say to them? Yeah, so I say to them a few things. One is what I just said about how we can't predict where their body's going to end up and Mm -hmm. that I have, you can't successfully recover from binge eating disorder without focus, but I think step one before even getting there is validating the heck out of them. That like, who wouldn't want to lose weight in this culture, especially if you're in a larger body and you're the recipient of weight stigma? Like that makes so much sense. Mm-hmm, yeah. And you know what I say is from my professional experience, I've helped a lot of people to recover from binge eating disorder, and a focus on weight loss is going to derail you. Right. right so yeah. Let's try to put that on the back burner. It's okay that that thought is there. And if your body is truly meant to be smaller, it will be smaller. But if it's not, it won't. And trying to control the size of your body is only keeping you stuck in what is an incredibly exhausting, like physically and emotionally cycle. That's a really good way to put it. Um, I think patients often just want that answered right away. So saying, not like saying, no, we're never going to deal with that, but like setting it aside for later is a really great way to go about it. Yeah, and I'm very upfront with people when they call. You know, if they're on the phone, they're like, yeah, I just need to lose weight. I'm like, totally hear you, and it's okay to have that feeling. And I just want you to know that I practice my health at every size framework. Right, yeah. And, you know, our focus will not be on, it'll be on self-care and recovery. And your behaviors, yeah. Yeah, so they get to decide. Mm-hmm, awesome. So, what are some, you know, treatment strategies for binge eating that differ from bulimia, anorexia, or any of the others? Yeah. So, honestly, I think you said that differ. Yeah, that differ. Okay. Yeah. So, when it comes to binge eating disorder, I mean, I think from my vantage point, again, it's tailored to each person, but my treatment strategy for bulimia is going to be very similar to binge eating disorder, except mm-hmm. we're going to be working on, well, I was going to say except we're working on the compensatory element, but often for binge eating, there is a compensatory element as well. Um, and then when it comes to anorexia, we're also working on the restriction piece. We're working on the habituation piece. Um, I think that ultimately the behaviors are different and there's going to be different strategies in the sense of like, Urge surfing might be more useful for somebody with binge eating, although, of course, we can use that with restriction. But ultimately, I think that, like, while treatments are different and they're not the same, I think there is also crossover, and you have to acknowledge that. Because I think, unfortunately, like, 
with the eating disorder hierarchy among patients, there's this thought of like, well, anorexia has to be so different from binge eating. Uh, yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah. Um, but I definitely think there's a lot of commonalities. For instance, many clients with anorexia will say, I'm terrified that, you know, I'm going to start binging if I give myself permission to eat. And, you know, sometimes that happens, sometimes it doesn't. But I always say, you know, if that happens, I'm trained in treating that too, and we can. But ultimately, the same way I treat binge eating, we start with looking at restriction. So if we're working on your restriction, we're going to be helping with all of that. Right, definitely. And I think that I see a lot of people who've bounced between diagnoses, you know, like they have anorexia at one point, and then they have binge eating at one point. And so it's really the same thing. It's just different symptoms that are happening. Absolutely. And I think there can be similar underlying core motivation. Oh, yeah. Yeah. So what's the most difficult part of recovery from binge eating that you see for your clients? I think the most difficult part, there's a few parts, like one, letting go of the intentional pursuit of weight loss. Yeah. That tells me that you need to lose weight. So hard. All the time. It's really hard. I think also in the beginning, treatment for binge eating can feel counterintuitive to people because the reason people get so caught in the binge restrict cycle is that logically it seems to make sense. Mm-hmm. If my logic is that I'm out of control around certain foods, well, then logically I should limit my access to those foods. Those foods are the problem, right? However, that only serves to keep the cycle going. Mm-hmm. And so I think treatment can feel paradoxical. Wait, you're telling me that like I should stock up on those foods in my house? If I'm not that place in my recovery or that I should go out and get an ice cream cone, which is something I usually binge on. Um, so that allowance of permission to really actually allow yourself to have all foods in like gradual steps for someone who binges can be really scary. And then yeah, also yeah. adding more, let's say they're binging at night, adding more during the day can be scary too. Cause it's like, Oh gosh, well then I'm going to still binge. And it's like, yeah, but the restriction is keeping you stuck in the cycle of binging. Right, definitely. And I think that's the big thing to recognize for patients is that binge eating is not just eating a lot. It's also restricting at other times. Um, And that part, I think, is forgotten when we think about binge eating disorder. Yeah, I absolutely agree. Um, So I know with a lot of eating disorders, especially um, bulimia, but all of them, you see many different co-occurring conditions. What sort of co-occurring conditions are, do you frequently see with binge eating disorder? Yeah, so I think anxiety and depression are very common co-occurring conditions. With all. This is often yeah. part of anxiety, but like social anxiety can be common. Um, I'm trying to think of other ones. Trauma, that's not a co-occurring condition necessarily, but being a trauma survivor. Right. Not for everyone, but that can sometimes be a piece people as well as like substance use substance abuse can also sometimes be a struggle mm-hmm. but I would say the most common are anxiety and depression that I see co-occurring okay so sort of the same as you know you would see in anorexia um, as well yeah I mean I don't want to make broad um, stereotypes because of course there are people yeah. of all spectrums who suffer from all illnesses but more commonly, what I see with anorexia is obsessive-compulsive disorder, mm. um, anxiety, depression. There's been a link between, you know, people on the autism spectrum and anorexia as well. So there's some similarities, and then there, there are often some differences. Right. And so my second-to-last question for you is, why do you like working with this population, and what sort of got you into um, wanting to do this work? 
Yeah, so I love working with people, honestly, with all eating disorders. And I think that people with eating disorders are generally pretty intelligent, resilient, compassionate people. And what I typically find is that they're very hard on themselves and they're they're not able to see the incredible person that they truly are. But people with eating disorders are some of the most awesome people that I know. And I think the work is super rewarding, like being able to definitely be able to become free from a mental illness that has plagued their life and being able to take steps forward is huge seeing people like able to have Girl Scout cookies in their house who used to binge on them or people who felt anxiety about eating out at a restaurant who can now eat at a restaurant with no problems. Um, that kind of stuff is very rewarding, like on the day-to-day, week-to-week level. And also just my own, like I was always interested in psychology and helping people, but having struggled with my own eating disorder, which went through a few different iterations mm-hmm. and resulted in almost every eating disorder symptom, barring like maybe one or two. Um, Yeah. Yeah. I think that gives me a lot of empathy and compassion. And now that I'm out on the other side, just being able to like enjoy my life and have a really full life without that constant mental noise about food in my body, that's just something that I want everyone to be able to experience. Right. Definitely. And that's a huge driver behind this podcast as well. So um, thanks so much for being part of that and helping to help other people hopefully get to that other side. Well, thank you so much for having me. Yeah. I have one more question that I ask every guest. um, And it is, what is your favorite food? (laughs) That's a good question. I got asked this on Instagram this morning. Oh, really? (laughs) Well, good. You're prepared. (laughs) Yeah. The question actually was, what was your favorite? They asked me, it was, what was your favorite food aside from donuts? Oh. <laughs> I'm going to say Jonah. Um, that would definitely be my favorite food, but I like a wide variety of, of other foods. And lately I've been a big ice cream, soft serve ice cream person. Too, oh, it's so. good. And you're in Maryland, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I used to live in Maryland and I love Rita's and we don't have it up here in New England. It makes me really sad. <laughs> but, real. Um, But thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming on the show. Thank you so much for having me.